Amen. <clears throat> Morning. I'm clapping for you. You guys sounded really good. <laughs> you look good, too. Uh, if you were here early enough to get breakfast, there was a Pastor John sighting this morning. Did you see him serving eggs in the, in the line? He uh, hardly ever takes time off, right? But he has had a week. He was in Belize. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. He went with his family. Um, I, he was supposed to be doing some zip lining. I don't think he did that. But he did do some diving and some snorkeling, and we want to hear about that when he's back. So if you're visiting, please come back next week because John will be back in the pulpit. He can't wait. And we're going to continue our study of Romans. Last week, if you were here, you heard Rob Selleck teach out of the Gospel of Luke. You remember that? That was a whole week ago. You remember? Okay, good. A whole week. That's good. Were you clapping that you could remember for a week? Or? <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, me too. He spoke out of the Gospel of Luke about 10 lepers. Remember, leprosy was a disease. There was no cure. It was debilitating. It was like you had walking, a walking death sentence. And he, Jesus healed 10 lepers all at one time. And the 10 lepers went running off to, to show themselves to the priest and to get their lives back. But then only one of the 10 stopped and turned around and went back to Jesus to say thank you and to worship him as Lord. 10 men were healed one was saved. And Rob challenged us with a question I've been thinking about all week. I wonder if you remembered it. He said, which are we? Are we like the nine? Do we take God's blessings? Are we go, wow, great, we're just off? Or are we like the one, the tenth man that takes God's blessing and we go right back to Jesus and say thank you and we worship him? And as I thought about that, I think, well, wait a minute. If I'm the tenth man, I'm being blessed by God all day and all night. So that means I'm going to Jesus all day and all night and thanking him and worshiping him. And isn't that what our life should be all about? And I hope today's message will follow nicely behind Rob's because today we're going to be looking at the wonderful nature of God's grace and the blessing that comes from them. Uh, my father served in Germany in World War II and um, well, he was there. He, when he got back, he told me stories about a general uh, that he met, or might have met, I guess we don't know if he met him, but there was a general over there that used to uh, command our forces, and they made a movie about this general. You probably heard of him, General George Patton. General Patton was famous for his toughness and his brilliance. <clears throat> well, one day he made a surprise inspection at a military base where there was no military discipline at all. In fact, he found a soldier asleep in the hallway. So the general, being what he was, came up and kicked that soldier hard to wake him. And the soldier cursed, but when he looked up and saw the general standing over him, he got to his feet, probably gave kind of a sloppy salute, and the general barked, Private! What the heck are you doing? And the private said, uh, Sleeping, sir. General thought about that answer for a minute and said, Well get back down there and go back to sleep. You're the only person around here who knows what he's doing. <laughs> General was also famous for his profanity, so I had to clean that up a little bit. But the General asks a really good question. Let's see if we can answer it. What are we doing? What are you and I doing right now? Okay, well, obvious, we're in church. A few of you might have to say what the private said. I'm sleeping, but that's okay. 
let's look at the question from a spiritual point of view. What are you and I doing in Christ right now? Before we answer that, let me take you back in time. Think back to the day, if you can, when you first prayed and asked Jesus to be your Savior. Do you remember that day? Some of you will, some of you won't. I remember that day. For me, it was March 30, 1964, just a couple of months before I turned 10 years old. That was a long time ago now. The day that you prayed to ask Jesus to be your Savior, some amazing things happened to you. Let me give you a short list. You became a new creation. You were completely forgiven. Your sins were forgiven and erased like they never happened. You were set free from sin's power over you. You received the gift of eternal life. You got a guaranteed reservation in heaven. You became pure and spotless in God's eyes because the blood of Jesus washed you clean. God's Holy Spirit took up residence in your life to be your guide and to be with you now and forever. And you were adopted into God's family as his son or daughter for eternity. Think about that. That is a huge result from your very first prayer of faith. And the day you prayed that prayer, maybe you didn't know too much about God. Maybe you didn't own a Bible. You didn't go to church. And maybe you were involved in a lot of sin in your life, but God saved you. Why? Ephesians 2.8 says, For grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. You and I are saved by grace. What is grace? We talk about that word a lot at this church. Grace is God's unearned unmerited favor. It means God gave you and I a gift that we could not possibly earn. Out of the depths of God's loving heart, he gave us his love, he gave us forgiveness, he gave us his son, he gave us our salvation, he gave us grace when we trusted in Christ. That is called saving grace. The good news is God's grace doesn't end there. It's just the beginning. So back to the question, what are you and I doing in Christ? Let's find out. It's exciting. We're going to look at three aspects of God's ongoing grace. We're going to talk about the purpose. Then we're going to talk about the process that God gives us His grace. And then we'll close by looking at some products or results of God's grace in our lives. And hopefully when we get to the third part of the message, you'll understand the title of the message, the oil can for the tin man. Let's, let's begin by bowing our head and asking our gracious Lord to bless the teaching of His Word Dear Father, uh, we thank you for this church. We thank you for everyone here, Lord. Ask your blessing on every person. And now, Father, would you please open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds to the wonderful message of your grace. Lord, the words we find in Scripture are not the thoughts of man. They are your thoughts. So, Father, we need your Holy Spirit right now to teach us and guide us. And we ask this in the name of the one who is above us all, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's begin with the purpose of God's grace. And for that, I need you to turn to a book in the Bible. Probably if you just set your Bible down, it'll fall open to Romans. That's the book we've been studying with Pastor John for over a year. Romans 8, 28, and 29. Won't be spending a lot of time here because Pastor John's already preached on this beautifully. So we just can't really start talking about grace without starting in Romans 8, 28, 29 for context. 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The words to underline, if you haven't done so already, are to become conformed or to be conformed. This speaks of an ongoing process that God uses to give us grace in our lives, to transform us. And this process has a name. Maybe you've heard of the process. The process is called life. You know all that stuff that we deal with every day, the interruptions, the distractions, the disappointments, as well as the, the, the fun surprises, the tender moments, the acts of love and kindness. God uses it all. He uses everything in his process of transforming us, and it's all for our good. And when I was studying this passage, a question popped into my mind, and I cannot stop thinking about it. I'll, I'll, here's the question. Wouldn't my life be radically different if I looked at everything that happened to me as a gift from God for my good, whether I could see the good or not? What if, what if I went through life and no matter what happened, I didn't look at the circumstances? I just trusted Christ. What if when something happened, instead of complaining or being stressed, what if I just thanked the Lord? What if I had absolute confidence in Almighty God so I was confident that He knew what was best for me, whether I could sort it out in my little pea brain or not? You know what that would be? That, to me, would be life-changing faith. That would be the rubber-meets-the-road faith. That would be the kind of faith an unbeliever would see and say, wait a minute, I want some of that kind of faith because that faith is real faith. I had a little taste of that faith not too long ago. I started out my day with a root canal. That was fun. Then I went to work and had a particularly tough day at the office. And then on my way home on the freeway, I blew a tire. Okay, root canal, tough day at the office, flat tire on the freeway. That's three strikes and you're out, right? That should be declared a bad day. I had every right to blow up and be pretty gloomy, I think. You know what I did? I pulled safely off the freeway, I got out of my car, I looked up into the night sky and I said out loud with a laugh, well, I guess this is for my good, thank you. And you know what? I meant it. Anyone driving by would have thought I probably also needed one of those breathalyzer tests to see if I'd been drinking because only a drunk would be looking at the sky and talking but I was fine I was at peace I trusted the Lord I, I had no worries no stress it was great sadly though I have to confess to you on other days something will happen that I'm not expecting or wanting my eyes will not be on Jesus they'll be on the problem and I will get stressed about it and then later a minute later, a week later, it doesn't matter, God will show me how he used that problem to bless me. And I think, why didn't I just trust him from the start? I know better. I want to stop that cycle in my life. I don't want to be that up and down guy. I want to trust the Lord with everything, every day. I really do. 
Another way to talk about God's grace is to talk about the work that he is doing in our lives. You know, we've all seen those signs on the highway, right? It says men working or crew and equipment working. And they warn us that the road ahead might be bumpy, there might be a detour, there could be a slowdown of traffic because construction is going on. I think it'd be a good idea, just thought, that we have a sign right out here in our lobby that says, God working. So we remember when we come in here, we're all under construction. It can be bumpy, there will be detours, and there will be some slowdowns. But praise God, he's working his grace into our lives. But the important question is, why is God working? What's his purpose? He's already saved us by grace. What more does he want for us? Well, the answer we read in Romans 8.28, and the answer is glorious. The answer is unimaginable. His purpose is to conform you and I into the image of his son. And what does that mean? It means that God wants to make you and I like Jesus in everything we think and everything we do. Or putting this another way, right now you are in the process of learning how to live your life the way Jesus would live it if he were you. Now when you and I look in a mirror, we may have reason to doubt that God will succeed in making us like Christ. We may doubt it, but the Bible assures it. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it into the day of Jesus Christ. God will perfect us. Show of hands, how many of you feel perfect this morning? Anybody? No? No? Hands? Well, it's a long process. And some of us have more ground to cover than others but we will all get there. God assures us of that. You know, back in the 70s, there was a man named Bill Gothard, and he traveled the country holding these week-long little rallies where he taught basic Christian principles primarily to young people. His rallies had a really catchy name. Do you want to hear it? A really good marketing name. They were called the Basic Youth Conflicts Seminar. Oh boy, didn't that sound like something fun to go to for a week? Well, when he came to the Long Beach Arena, I was in high school. And I got to go with about 10,000 other people. Uh, I got, went with my mom, and I got to bring my girlfriend, Joni, with me. And it was great to go with mom because we had to sit up pretty high in the arena, and mom brought in a cooler full of snacks. We had string cheese and smoked cheese and a lot of really great stuff, and that made it fun. We listened, too. We paid attention. And in fact, by the end of that seminar, I had the privilege of watching my girlfriend bow her head and ask Jesus to be her Savior at the end of that seminar. And then about three years later, I married her. And then we've had 38 wonderful years so far, and counting. When you completed Bill Gothard's course, he gave you a little pin, and it had these initials on it, these letters, and capital letters. I'll read you what it said. It, they, the pin said, P-B-P-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. And the letters stood for, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. I pray that we're a church that understands the wisdom of that statement. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. You know, our pastor, our leaders, you and I, each one of us is a work in prog progress. We are a project on God's workbench. Every one of us is under divine renovation. When you see defects in me, expect it, but please be patient. God is not finished with me or you yet. 
So the purpose of God's grace is to do the impossible. Every day, every day we are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. But how does God deliver that grace to us? Let's look more closely at that process called life. I broke it down into three categories. Okay, first off, God uses time. He uses our lifetime to pour out his grace into our lives. He uses our lifetime. You know, sometimes, back to the road analogy, when a road is being renovated, they'll put up a sign that'll tell us the name of the project, like the Imperial Highway Expansion Project, and then it'll give you a completion date, you know, summer 2013 or something, so you know when it'll be fixed. Well, God keeps every one of his renovation projects. That's you and I. He keeps each one of us right on schedule. He just doesn't publish that schedule for us. Wouldn't it be nice, though, if he did? How great would that be if, you could, if there was a sign? You could come in and check it, and it says, um, doing away with Dave's grumpy moods. Completion date, spring 2018. I mean, it would really help us to know who we wanted to hang out with and when. God's clock does not run like our clock. We are kind of people that want instant gratification, right? We want to lose 10 pounds in 10 days or 10 minutes. Here's the thing about the Lord. He is never, never in a hurry. But we can count on this. He is always persistent. So God uses time and he requires pain. You know, sometimes he has to do some demolition. Sometimes he has to knock some things down before he can rebuild us. And the demolition hurts. But the pain that comes from sin is much worse because the pain that comes from sin leads to death and destruction. The pain that comes from God's process is so temporary and always leads to joy and eternal life. God's process uses time, pain, and one more thing, the C word, change. Change. Most of us don't like change. We're creatures of habit. We are comfortable with the things that are normal. We prefer the known to the unknown. We are like birds in this respect. <laughs> I, at home, I have a parrot named Bentley, a green eclectus parrot, and he likes to play with little, little wiffle balls, little plastic wiffle balls. He likes to chew them up. When he chews one up, I give him a new one. One day, quite a while ago, I thought I'd give him a nice surprise. I took away the little chewed-up ball that he had, and I gave him a bigger ball. By bigger, I mean it was maybe an inch, inch and a half bigger in diameter than the one he had. So instead of this, it was this. And I gave him this ball. Based on Bentley's reaction, you think I put a cat in his cage. <laughs> he, he flapped. He screamed. He was bumping around in there. He would have hurt himself if I didn't get that ball out of there. So I removed that threatening ball, and you know what I did? I, I set it outside his cage. So he... He could keep a wary eye on that thing. Day and night, he could look, look over there, make sure it's okay. And you know what? After a couple of days, he got perfectly all right with it. I took the ball outside, put it back in his cage, and he had a great time with it. It actually was better for him because it was bigger. He could throw it around more, and it lasted longer. It was for his own good, but he was deathly afraid of it at first. The changes that God brings into our life is, are always for our own good even though we may be deathly afraid of them at first. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called Mere Christianity, and he said this. We're getting to the tin part now. He said, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought into you. 
beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live person. The part of you that doesn't like it is the part that is still tin. All of us have some tin spots, don't we? We have those things that we do that we don't want to talk about and we really squirm when God goes to work on those areas in our life. Our tin spots make perfect targets for God's grace. And we're going to talk about those in a minute, but a quick recap. The purpose of God's grace is to make us like Christ. The process he uses requires time, pain, and change. But as the Father transforms us into the likeness of his Son, our tin transforms too. So let's look at some of the products. These are some of the things that maybe you and I have battled all our lives. We're going to talk about what grace can do for our insecurity, weakness, compromise, and pride. There are more, of course, but we won't have more time than just those four. Now, The Wizard of Oz. You all remember that movie, right? Okay, when Dorothy found the Tin Woodman, he was frozen. He had rusted over. He couldn't move. He was frozen like a statue, holding his axe in the air. And Dorothy had to take that oil can and start putting oil, a little bit here and a little bit there, so he could move. First his jaw, right? And then his arm. And then she oiled his legs. And pretty soon he could sing and dance because he was in a musical. God works the same grace into our lives a little at a time. You know, maybe he starts with our tongue so our words can be more of a blessing than a curse. Then maybe he oils our arms so we can carry more of the load at home. Finally, maybe he oils our legs so we can serve him better and pretty soon we too are singing and dancing in the freedom of his grace. So let's see what happens to our insecurity when we become more like Christ. Do you ever struggle with your self-image? Would you say that you are satisfied with yourself all of the time? Some of the time? None of the time? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 6 to 10, and read about a person that should have had massive problems with insecurity, huge insecurity issues, but he didn't. Let's read the words that the Apostle Paul wrote about himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 to 10, he says, After that, he, the risen Christ, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So after Christ's crucifixion, he rose and he appeared to 500 people or more, and then he appeared to all of the apostles. And then Paul notes, last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What does it mean to be one untimely born. Being untimely born is a Greek term that means to be born before the full period of gestation. It literally means one who was aborted and dead. That's what it means. Paul is saying that at the time of Christ's resurrection, Paul, Paul's life was an abortion. He was spiritually dead. Paul is saying that Jesus should have discarded Paul but Jesus did not discard Paul. Jesus appeared to Paul. Jesus saved Paul. Clearly, our Lord sees us much differently than we see ourselves. 
Paul goes on to say, for I am the least of the apostles, for I am not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. While the other apostles were building the church, Paul was doing his level best to destroy it. Here's the question. How could Paul forgive himself for that? How could he look those dear people in the eye? People that he'd been persecuting. He probably had them, some of their family members and friends, thrown into jail where they were mistreated, some died. How could he look them in the eye? How could he overcome his insecurity? He tells us in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul relied completely on God's grace. I can picture Paul kneeling in prayer. Can you? Knowing that he could not face those people. He could not face his day without the grace of God. I'm sure he confessed what I'm sure many of you have confessed. Lord, if you don't give me your grace for this day, I will fail. I'm sure Paul knew the words that Jesus spoke in John 15, 5, where Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul wrote himself in Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. Paul relied completely on God's grace. Then after he prayed, he got up and he worked with all his might. I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You know, Paul traveled light. He didn't bring a suitcase with him full of, woe is me and I've made mistakes. He left all that baggage behind. Remember the word grace means undeserved favor? Paul knew that he did not deserve anything from God. And that's the beauty of it. God doesn't give us his grace because we are worthy. He gives us his grace because he is worthy. As believers, our confidence comes from the security we have in Jesus, not any security we have in ourselves. Paul found his security in Christ, and look what happened to Paul, if you know about the life of Paul. Paul, the persecutor of the church, became Paul, the proclaimer of the gospel. Paul, the least of the apostles, became Paul, the most prolific writer of the New Testament. And Paul, the abortion, became Paul, God's adopted son. By the grace of God, we are free to be what we are. And by the grace of God, he will make us all that he's created us to be. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Because Paul is going to address a second 10 target, weakness. Does anybody have any weak spots you're not proud of? Yeah, me too. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself... There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, but there are so many theories about it. 
In the Old Testament, thorns are used as an analogy for the enemies of the Israelites. So some scholars have concluded that, well, maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh were his Jewish persecutors. Some scholars think the thorn was depression. Paul suffered from depression or some carnal temptation. Most commentaries believe that Paul had a, some kind of physical disability or illness, maybe even some kind of serious eye disease. But whatever it was, look how he described it. It was, it was a messenger of Satan to buffet, or that means to torment me. So whatever it was, it had to be very unpleasant, maybe even revolting to look at. Here's the key for us to understand. This thorn in the flesh was given to Paul as a means to stop him in his tracks. It was supposed to stop him, or at the very least, throw him off his game and really distract him. It was supposed to make Paul wonder, Lord, how can I possibly serve you in this weakened condition? What are you struggling with? What is keeping you or trying to keep you from going all out for the Lord? Whatever that is, that is your thorn in the flesh. So what can grace do for our thorns, for our weaknesses? Paul prayed three times for the Lord to take that weakness away, but God did not take the weakness away. God gave him something instead. What did he give him? Grace. And Paul said, grace is nice, Lord, thanks. Um, but I'm still pretty much a mess here. You better clean this up. That's not what he said at all. Look again. He said, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul replied, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul stopped praying for his weakness to go away and started boasting about the weakness instead. Why? Because he realized the weaker he was, the more the power of Christ just poured into his life. When Christ fills you and I up, we better be ready for some wonderful side effects we're not expecting. Look what happened to Paul. He was praying for a weakness to go away, right? And now he suddenly now became well content with the weakness, but he got a bonus pack. Look, look what he got. He says, Therefore I'm well content with weakness and with insults, with persecutions and with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you understand one thing from today, please understand this. Christianity is not a religion. It is the most exciting, life-changing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who takes all the things that we humans try to avoid and he gives us the power to say, I am well content with all of them. I have to wave to my granddaughter in the back, sorry. <laughs> in God's hands, weaklings can become instruments of power. Okay, we've talked about insecurity. We've talked about weakness. Let's talk about the ten of compromise in Hebrews 13, 9. Corey Tenboom once said, this was the great ploy of Satan to display such blatant evil one could almost believe one's own secret sin didn't matter. Let's talk about compromise. Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. This passage teaches us an amazing thing about grace. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. What does that mean? It's good for us to, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we already have God's full approval of us because of the work that Jesus did on the cross 
for us. Therefore, we don't need to keep a list of do's and don'ts. We don't have to jump through hoops. We don't need to worry about ceremonial foods. We don't need to try to earn God's favor. Why? We already have God's favor if we put our faith in Christ. Now, there is no shortage of strange teachings in the world. You've probably noticed that. And we need the grace of God to stand firm with our feet planted squarely on the Word of God. Otherwise, left to ourselves, isn't it kind of easy to compromise? To just sort of look the other way and let things slide? And little by little, we just slide right off our foundation. There is a geological word for this. It's called erosion. People who live along the coast know a lot about erosion. You know those beautiful waves we like to go surf and take pictures of and look at? Well, those waves never stop. They're hitting the coast day and night. And what happens? Well, to our naked eye, nothing changes, but a trained surveyor can measure and chart the decay. Our coastlines lose one, two, three feet of prime real estate a year by erosion as little bits are carried off to sea. We had some friends that used to live near the coast. had a beautiful home with a full view of the ocean up on the bluffs of San Clemente. And one day we were over there for dinner and they showed us some little cracks that had appeared in their ceiling and roof that they hadn't noticed before. Didn't think too much of it at the time, but over the months ahead, wow, those cracks got bigger and deeper and more cracks appeared. And they went outside and their cement deck was raising in one area and sinking in another area. And within about a year, their home was declared unfit for habitation. The land underneath their house was eroding. Nothing could be done to stop the decay and save their home. Nothing. Erosion is slow, steady, and deadly on the coast and in our hearts. Spiritual erosion is just as subtle as land erosion. It goes like this. One day we make a small little compromise in our Christian beliefs. Nobody, nobody even notices. It's great. So it's easier to compromise the next time. One day we, we, we question God's authority, the authority of his word and his authority over our lives. We just question just a little bit at first. No bolt comes out of the blue to get us. It's a little easier to question God's word the next time and the next. Pretty soon we end up downgrading Jesus. He used to be the Lord of our life. But over time, we just inch him off the throne so we can take over or at the very least share the chair. Spiritual erosion is just as hard to spot as land erosion because on the outside of a person, that doesn't look like anything's changed, but inside, tiny cracks are starting to appear in the person's faith and in the person's character. And over time, those cracks get deeper and wider, and their walk with Christ becomes more and more shaky as the land, their foundation they stand on is crumbling. You know, sometimes in the news, we hear those tragic stories about a pastor or a Christian leader who is exposed in some sort of terrible sin. And the news to us is sudden and shocking, but I can promise you the road that person took to get there was not sudden. It was a long, slow, steady slide of compromise. Could we fall like that? Are we capable of that kind of fall? Let's remember what the Apostle Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He wrote, But I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. This word buffet means literally to hit somebody right under the eye and give them a black eye. Paul is saying he was ready to punch his own lights out to stop from compromising. Here again, I can picture Paul on his knees, asking God to give him the strength he needs to go out and travel those roads, preach the word day after day, 
And then Paul got up off his knees and went to work with discipline to fight the good fight. When Paul wrote about being disqualified, he was not saying that he feared that he could lose his salvation. He was afraid he could lose something else that is priceless, and that is his victory and purpose in Christ. If it could happen to Paul, it could happen to any of us. That's why we need God's grace to stand firm and not compromise. Okay, we've looked at insecurity, weakness, and compromise. Let's close with one more piece of tin, and this may be the toughest tin plating of all, the tin of pride. And pride has a partner. We'll talk about him in a minute. There was a song released back in 1985 called We Are the World. I wonder if you remember that song? We Are the World. It went quadruple platinum, sold over 20 million copies. The proceeds, over $60 million, went to uh, African famine relief and humanitarian aid in the United States. This song combined the performances of every major recording artist at the time. People like Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Bruce Springsteen, Paul Simon, Cyndi Lauper, Bob Dylan, Diana Ross. The list went on and on and on. And each one of these got one short little solo, and that's it. They were all treated the same. Quincy Jones was the producer of the record, and it was his challenge to make sure all the divas and rock stars played nice with each other. So he made a sign, and he put it right outside the recording studio door so every one of them would see it before they came in. The sign said, check your egos at the door. Check your egos at the door. You know what? Our egos don't like being checked at the door. Our pride doesn't want to be left out of anything. Our pride only knows two words. says it to us all the time. Feed me. Feed me. Pride has a voracious appetite. It devours friendships, marriages, partnerships, careers, and ministries. I have said and done some pretty stupid things because of pride. I don't know if you have, but I've hurt people I care about. And I've put myself in danger because my pride was threatened in some way or another. But pride is a con artist. Pride acts like it's looking out for your best interest. Pride will tell you, I want to make sure you get all the credit you deserve. I want to make sure you get all the attention you've got coming. Pride will insist that you have the last word. Pride doesn't care about you. Pride only wants to destroy you because that's the nature of the beast. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Do you know who pride sounds like? Pride sounds an awful lot like Satan because it's Satan's goal to have us find fulfillment in ourselves, not in Christ. Pride and Satan go hand in hand like partners in crime. So how can we battle our pride and Satan? James 4, 6 to 7. In James 4, 6 to 7 says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. God is against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do we become humble? It's a very simple formula. It's right here. Submit, therefore, to God. Submit means to surrender. Submit means to say to God, your way, Lord, is better than my way. Remember what Jesus said? to the Father when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that they were coming to arrest him, to take him to the cross. In Luke 22, 42, 
Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's a true humble heart. That's a submissive heart that says, I want your way, not my way, even if my, your way leads to death for me. Here's the problem for us. It really goes against our human nature to want to submit to God. We don't want to submit to anyone, anything. That's why we need a greater grace so we will willingly submit to our Lord. And when we submit to God, he gives us the strength to stand up to our pride and to the devil and send them running. James 4 has a very clear message for us, and this is it. Only when we surrender to our king can we receive the benefits of his reign. Only when we surrender to the king can we receive the benefits of his reign. If you're not experiencing victories in your life, just check to see who's on the throne. Okay, back to our opening question. So what are you doing? What are we doing in Christ? If you've asked Jesus to be your savior, you can say, I am becoming like Jesus, but not instantly, so please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. You can say, I am thanking God for everything that he brings into my life because I know he's doing it for my good as he transforms me. And you can say, I am surrendering my will and my flaws to my God so I can be everything he created me to be. Let's bow our heads. And, and I want to give you just a moment of, of silence. So in this moment of silence, you can thank the Lord personally for his grace in your life. And if in this message... Um, you feel like there's an area of your life you haven't submitted to God yet, take this moment now just, just to turn that over to him. I'll just give you a minute and then we'll close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for hearing us when we call. Lord, thank you for accepting us as we are, loving us as we are, and sending your son Jesus to die for us as we are. Please, Father, bless the words spoken here today so they may penetrate deep into our hearts and change the way we live for the glory of Christ and all by your grace. And we ask this in the name of our King, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.